In John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as a shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd. But he speaks about his shepherding in somewhat unexpected, I think, and maybe even unusual terms. We might have expected him to describe his work as of, of being the good shepherd in terminology that reminds us of one of the most well-known psalms in the entire scriptures, Psalm 23. When Jesus speaks of himself as being a shepherd, we would expect him to speak of it in terms of making us lie down in green pastures or leading us beside still waters or doing things that restore our souls. And certainly he does all of those things. But in John chapter 10, he describes it in different terms. In John chapter 10, in verse 11, he tells his audience, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The terminology that Jesus uses to describe his work as a shepherd is in laying down his life for the sheep. And in case his audience didn't get it, he says it again. In verses 14 and 15 of John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. What does he do? And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, just in case we aren't quite getting it, he says it again, and again, and again. Verses 17 to 19. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Five times, if you're counting these verses, Jesus tells us, I lay down my life for the sheep. And in case anything in that, in those five times, wasn't clear, he clarifies what he means by I lay it down in verse 18 when he says, no one takes it from me. And that was clearly the case because throughout the ministry of Jesus, on numerous occasions, there are people trying to do exactly that. They are trying to take his life. In fact, just a few verses later in verse 31, when Jesus has made the claim to his audience that I and the Father are one, 
there are certain people who hear that claim and pick up stones determined to stone him to death right there on the spot. And we see more of the same in the next chapter when, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Here's the response of some of the people who saw something so incredibly remarkable in John eleven fifty three, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We can't have people raising people from the dead around here. Well, eventually their plans come together because they get themselves a man on the inside. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that Jesus is not just betrayed. It's not just a stab in the back. In fact, it's not a stab in the back at all. It's a kiss. Matthew 26, verses 48 to 50, the Bible says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Notice Jesus here saying, that, saying to, to Judas, do what you came to do. This is not Jesus having his life taken from him. This is Jesus laying it down. When Judas gives Jesus that kiss, we've got to remember what the good shepherd said. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. Jesus finds himself before a Jewish tribunal and they're asking him all sorts of questions. And Caiaphas, who is the high priest at the time, gets frustrated with Jesus because He's laying these charges against him, and he's asking Jesus questions, and he's expecting that Jesus is going to defend himself, and he's getting nothing from him. Jesus isn't saying anything. And finally, in frustration, in Matthew chapter 26, he says this, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. His silence was not freezing because the moment was just too big. His silence was not related to not knowing what exactly to say, of course, or to not have a good defense. His silence is because he is there to lay down his life. So when we see Jesus before Caiaphas not uttering a word, remember what the good shepherd said. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus moves on to the next court. Now he's standing before a Roman tribunal, once again making no attempt whatsoever to defend himself. Pilate asks him a question in John chapter 19. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. I like this. Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate is essentially saying to Jesus, I don't think you understand the severity of the situation here. I don't think you know who I am. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't think you know who I am. You think you are in a position of power and authority. But when we read this, We need to remember what the good shepherd told us. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he has blood streaming from his head and his back and his hands and his feet, Matthew tells us that insult is added to these injuries. In verses 39 to 43 of Matthew 27, the Bible tells us, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. Jesus could have come down from the cross, right? He could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him. He could have rescued himself at any time. He could have vaporized his enemies with a word, but he receives Judas's kiss and he just takes it. He stands before Caiaphas's accusations and he just takes it. He stands before Pilate, and he just takes it. He's nailed to a cross, and he just takes it. He's mocked by the onlookers and by the thieves on either side, and he takes it. But when it comes to the losing of his life, you better understand nobody takes it. There was not a single moment when someone was taking something from Jesus that he was not freely giving. Why? Well, the good shepherd's already told us. And the good shepherd said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Now, the fact that Jesus lays down his life for us rather than having it taken from him 
tells us a lot of things. But I want to give us just two truths to meditate on that are connected to that idea this evening for you to take through this weekend with you. Number one, it shows us His sovereign control. It shows us His sovereign control. At, at this point and in the, the, the days and hours leading up to this moment, everything seems like it's spinning out of control, doesn't it? There is chaos. Imagine the chaos in the garden as the disciples are trying to wrap their minds around what has just happened. Judas has just come up and betrayed him. They did not see this coming. There's chaos ensuing when Peter whips out a sword and lops a guy's ear off. There's chaos as the disciples run in every direction for their lives. There's chaos when a young man who's there with them is seized by the authorities and has to abandon his clothing to escape. I mean, that's the kind of scene that the, that the biblical writers are, are trying to, to paint for us. There is just chaos filled, filling every moment. Caiaphas and Pilate think that because Jesus is the one standing bound before, him, before them, that they are the ones that are in control. And even when he is nailed to the cross and hoisted into an upright position, Satan seems to be the one who's in control. But even amidst all of this chaos, the good shepherd was always and at every point completely in control. Because the good shepherd told us that it had been his intent the whole time to do what? To lay his life down. So even as his last breath is escaping him, the universe is bending to his will. And even as his chin comes to rest on his chest, the serpent's head is being crushed. He is accomplishing the redemption of his sheep. He is purchasing the forgiveness and freedom that comes at the expense of his own blood. So even on Good Friday, the good shepherd is in control. The second truth that I want us to meditate on this weekend, not only his sovereign control, but it also shows us his sacrificial love. Jesus is on a mission here when he tells us no less than five times that he's about to lay down his life. And that mission is motivated by sacrificial love. The only way for us to be forgiven was through the offering of a perfect sacrifice, the one that 
was read about in the Hebrew Scripture reading just a few moments ago. And that perfect sacrifice was offered once and for all by a sinless substitute. Jesus standing in the place of sinners, offering His life and shedding His blood in place of ours. Jesus, contrary to popular belief, was not driven to the cross by obligation. Jesus was not driven to the cross through a twist of unforeseen circumstances. One of the main factors that drove Christ to the cross was love for you. But you don't have to take my word for it. He said it himself in John chapter 15 and verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone, here he goes again, lay down his life his friends. So nobody takes the life of the good shepherd. Rather, he lays that life down out of love for his sheep, the men and women that he rescues and calls from darkness to light. So as we consider the death of the good shepherd on Good Friday, Let us remember that under the chaos is his sovereign control. And under the scarcity of light is his sacrificial love. On Good Friday, we need to be reminded of what the Good Shepherd told us. Nobody takes my life. Me. I lay it down. 